Um, so a month or so into um, my marriage to Joe, we had our uh, first serious row. I'm going to say right up front that this was my fault, my instigation. I was being particularly obnoxious with her. I won't go into the details. You can ask me afterwards if you want to. But so persistent was I being in my obnoxiousness, if that's a word, Joe just felt she couldn't be in my presence any longer. So she left the flat and jumped in her car and drove off. Um, and as she will tell the story uh, to you, she came to a literal crossroads and metaphorical crossroads and the traffic lights at the A13. Up to the left was a Starbucks coffee house, and to the right was the turning to her parents' place. And she felt at that moment that she had a really important decision to make. Either she, she could turn right back to her parents' house to seek solace and comfort there. She'd done that every time for the, her life previously, whenever something like this had happened. Go, go to mum and dad. Or she could turn left to Starbucks, grab a coffee, um, get a caffeine fix, and then turn back round to her new family home and her newly married husband and, uh, well, seek to get some reconciliation with him. And the question was, which way was Joe um, going to go? Now, I'm pleased to say, um, you probably can guess it, for those who know I'm still married to Joe, and it's been 18 years now, um, Joe likes a good coffee, um, she did choose the um, Starbucks um, route, um, which was the harder route, back to me, back to the conflict to try and work um, things through. But I will never have a bad word said about Starbucks ever again, I mean, it saved our marriage. But that's quite a dramatic example to begin with, but the point is, like, every day you and I are making decisions, really important decisions, what seem like big decisions, small decisions, and every decision shapes who we are, shapes the people we're going to be, shapes the future direction of our lives. And the question is, how do we know what to do in those situations? How do we know what the right decision is, what the best decision is? How do we make sure that we are shaping the cause of our lives for good? As we come to this um, section of 1 Samuel, David, we're going to see, has an incredibly important decision to make. In the heat of conflict with Saul. And everything is on the line. His kingship, the fate of the nation. And as you're reading and thinking, which way is he going to go? Which decision is the right one? How do you know and how does this help us with our decisions today? So come with me to this passage now. If you've got your Bibles from the church, it's 29, page 296, but please do follow along uh, on your phones so we can see where this is all coming from. Three things we're going to see. Okay, we're going to see David's sudden restraint, we're going to see David's unexpected response, and we're going to see David's right to rule. All of it pointing to Jesus Christ, all of it pointing to how you and I can shape the direction of our lives for good. First, David's sudden restraint. Now, this is verses 1 to 7 of chapter 24, but we have skipped over six chapters since last week, right? David and Goliath in chapter 17. Six chapters where Saul has gone on this murderous hate campaign against David. Even after David defeats Goliath, he gets jealous because all the people are praising David rather than Saul. He gets angry because of all these military conquests that David's managing to achieve. And so now he is actually out to plot to kill David. No matter that Saul is in the middle of an army, sorry, in the middle of a a battle with the Philistines, verse 1. He then chooses, verse 2, to take 3,000 able men, that's the SAS in his army, to hunt down at David. 
Just so we're absolutely clear, this is completely wrong of Saul, right? This is completely evil on a number of levels, not least because David has been anointed by God and he is the chosen one to be the next in line. Okay, so this brings you all up to speed. The last six chapters, verses one and two, here we are. Let's pick up the action in verse three when we are ready for Saul's reign to come to an end. Verse three. Saul came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, the Bible doesn't spare any blushes. He needs to go to the toilet, right? Nature calls, even for a king. David and his men were far back in the cave. I was chatting to Neil Drysdale's parents after the 11 a.m. this morning. They've been to En Gedi. They say there are just like hundreds of caves. Out of all the caves that Saul could have picked to go to the toilet, he picks the one cave where David and his men are hiding. The very person he's been trying to kill and capture. And now he finds himself in David's hands in the palm of David's hands, and we're thinking to ourselves, this is comeuppance time for King Saul. Verse 4, the men, that's David's men, they say to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with you as you wish. David's men are saying, talk about providence. (laughs) The cave we're hiding in, and the Lord has brought Saul right into it to be with us. It's from the Lord, can't you see? Here is your moment. It's an open goal. You can't miss. Take him out. And all the hassle, all the misery of the last few years will be over. The throne that is rightfully yours, take it. End of verse 4. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I'm in the suspense of this. I don't understand why he doesn't just go for the jugular. Why is he toying around and mucking around with Saul's robe first? I don't know. But verse 5, afterwards, immediately, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Why the sudden restraint? There is David. He's creeping up unnoticed. He's ready to take Saul's life one moment. And suddenly the next, he's saying to his men, no one is to even lay a finger on him. What has just happened? Well, it seems that David has come to the realization that this is not the Lord's providence after all. But this is a very subtle and sinister temptation. There is no prophecy in the Bible that matches David's men's words in verse 4. It may sound very biblical, it is completely wrong. What is biblical is commandment number six of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. What is biblical is that Saul is still the Lord's anointed. And to attack the anointed one is to attack God himself. And so no wonder David is so conscience-stricken the moment he cuts off Saul's robe. This is not providence. This is temptation. And the question for us is, do we know the difference between the two? 
Can you and I tell the difference with the Lord's providence or the Lord's temptation in our lives? Or I should say the devil's temptation. Let me give you a few examples. Because people could, you know, sometimes you can feel something is so right. Others can be saying it is so, this is from the Lord, and yet it can be completely wrong. That offer of a promotion which you have been working so hard for and praying for, and doesn't God promise to reward those who work hard? And yet that promotion will mean more hours in the office, less time with your friends and family, and will be detrimental to your health. Is that providence? Or is that temptation? That chance encounter with someone you met online, and they happen to live in London too, and you get on so well together, and they say they're a Christian, and it feels so right, and your friends are saying, oh, this is clearly from the Lord. He's in it. And yet you're still slightly unsure where they are coming from Christianly. Providence or temptation? An advertisement for a new flat which just happens to land in your inbox the very week your lease is coming up for renewal and the rent is lower and the space is bigger and it seems like just such an open door from the Lord. Yet its location means you'll have to move away from church, move away from your current support structures, move away from the people you've been reaching out to. Providence or temptation? And how do we tell the difference? How we need, you and I, we need to be immersed in God's word, the Bible. We need to be immersed there to know his will, to know right from wrong. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit's work in our lives, convicting us through his word. If we're going in the wrong direction, and if we're going in the wrong direction, in the heat of conflict, and we get that, that, we're struck with that, it's never too late to stop, to turn around, to have this sort of sudden restraint that can have huge implications for ourselves, who we are, the people we'll be, the future direction of our lives. David's sudden restraint. God wants us to be alert to this. Temptation can be very subtle. Sometimes temptation is obvious. It's easy to discern. Sometimes temptation could be so subtle it's in the very point which you think or someone else is saying to you, it's from the Lord. So let's be praying about this. Let's be helping one another with it, especially in areas of conflict. David's sudden restraint. Secondly, David's unexpected response. Because in verses 8 to 15, David doesn't stay hidden in the cave. I mean, I would have done after what I think Saul's trying to do. To... He comes out after him, calls out to him, seeks reconciliation with him. This man, this tyrant of a man who's been plotting his death. Three parts to this. First, notice David's respectfulness and humility towards Saul in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. I mean, I bet Saul couldn't believe it. To see David respond to him like this after all the wrongs Saul has done to David, the relentless attacks, the constant threats, the many injustices, trying to ruin David's life, and yet David is still respectful. My Lord, the King, humble, bows down, prostrate. I was driving the kids to school the other day, and the cyclist came whizzing by on our left-hand side, just banging on the side of our car, 
railing against me, all this colorful language coming out, and like kids and me, we're like real shy, I didn't actually know what was going on. But I can tell you, my natural instinct was not to get out the car, bow down and prostrate myself to this man. Like I had no respect for him at all. I wanted to rail back, wind down my window and give him what's, I mean, don't you find that the bent of the human heart, the natural instinct if someone wrongs me, I'm gonna wrong you back. The temptation, how strong it is to get even when we are wronged or mistreated, to say something we'll later regret, go on the offensive, get on our high horse, blow things out of proportion way beyond the original offense. But David shows us a better way. A more gentle, respectful, humble way as he seeks reconciliation even with a man like Saul. Notice, secondly, how David's response here does not prevent him from speaking some hard truths to Saul in verses 9 to 11. Let me read those verses to us. David said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Notice two things going on here. First, where there are false narratives circulating about David, he corrects them. I'm not bent on harming you, here is part of your robe as proof of my goodwill towards you. Secondly, where wrong has been done, he names it. I have not wronged you, but you are trying to kill me. One of the things I really appreciated from the fact that Joe turned left, not right, took the Starbucks and came back to me and pointed out my wrong and pointed out my fault is it allowed me to say sorry, to seek forgiveness and be reconciled to her. It must have been so much harder, a hard choice for her than me. It would have been so much easier to go to mum and dad, relax there, get some wisdom, maybe get her parents to call me. Hey, look, in some instances, maybe that's the better thing to do. She was probably pretty fearful coming back, particularly the state I was in, particularly how obnoxious I was being. But the point, oh, mate, it was so good to have the wrong pointed out. Speak truth into the situation. Say sorry, seek forgiveness, be reconciled with her. So look, really important in times of conflict to be respectful and humble even when the other person is doing, seeking to do such harm to us. But also really important for us to speak truth into the situation even when it's really hard to do, even when we're really fearful of the consequences so false narratives can be corrected, so wrong can be pointed out and so reconciliation can be sought. Notice thirdly, how David leaves justice in the Lord's hands. Verses 12 to 15. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Verse 15. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, is this not so hard to do? 
to say something like to leave things in the Lord's hands, especially when the other person is not being respectful to you, not being gentle with you, not being humble like Saul is with David, when false narratives are not being corrected, when for whatever reason the conversations that need to take place can't take place and truth can't be spoken into a situation, how tempting is it then to take matters into your own hands? to try and manipulate the situation, to force the issue and to not wait patiently on the Lord's justice. Oh, that is so hard to do. That temptation can feel so strong. But just look at David here. He is in the very cave with Saul relieving himself, the man who has made David's life, David's life a misery for the past five years. The man who's been such a thorn in his side, the man about whom God has said his reign's coming to an end anyway, you're going to be next. And now here he is right in front of David, just a few steps away. His friends, his men are saying, this is the day the Lord has given you, just a slit of the throat, it's yours, justice, finally. May the Lord judge between you and me. He will vindicate me. He will deliver me from your hand, but my hand will not touch you. David leaves justice in God's hands, in God's timing, and in God's way. And so must we, no matter how hard it is for us to do. So David's sudden restraint, David's unexpected response, thirdly and finally, David's right to rule. Because in verses 16 to 22, Saul's hardened heart begins to soften. Um, Perhaps it was David's humility, perhaps it was David's truth speaking, perhaps it was the absolute trust David was showing in God's justice, or maybe it's a mixture of all three, we're not told, but it has this transformative effect on Saul who calls David his son, verse 16, who admits he has treated David badly, verse 17, and that David has treated him well. Saul asks for a blessing upon David in verse 19. May the Lord reward you. And now Saul finally can see for himself in verse 20, David's right to rule. You will surely be king. And so... It seems the Lord has used David's humble, gentle response, speaking truth, trusting in the Lord's timing to bring this transformation. David shows himself yet again to be a man after God's heart who recognizes the difference between providence and temptation, shows remarkable restraint in a very testing situation, is respectful and humble despite the threat to his life, He corrects false narratives, he speaks truth no matter the consequences, and he leaves the outcome in God's hands. Here is a man who does not try to seize the kingship for himself, but waits patiently for the Lord to give it to him. And here is just the sort of leader the people back then need. And here's the thing for us. David is just a picture, just a shadow, just a pointer of the ultimate leader, the one who is alive today, the one each of us need, and the one each of us can have if we want.
one who showed remarkable restraint. As one of his own friends betrayed him, disciples abandoned him, crowds mocked him, and soldiers drove nails through his hands and feet on the cross. One who could have called upon a whole legion of angels to come down and rescue him from the cross, but left it all in the Father's hands. One who was completely innocent, lived a perfect life, and yet chose to die for the guilty, die for you and me, and for all the times we take matters into our own hands and twist the narratives and lie and manipulate and get things so tragically wrong. One who was respectful of everyone and yet spoke truth into their lives for their good. One who could tell the difference between providence and temptation. He could know it perfectly. Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. One who waited patiently for God's justice as he humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, and then three days later was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus Christ is the anointed one today. And unlike David, he is alive, and he is alive forevermore, and he is with us now, and whoever trusts in him receives the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, the power of his Holy Spirit within us at work. This is what makes all the difference. As we live life, not by ourselves, not on our own, not with that natural instinct to pay back, but we have Jesus with us and in us to live differently, to live incredibly attractive lives of peace and patience, restraint, not repaying evil for evil, but evil for good, ministers of reconciliation, people who don't seize power for themselves but use any God-given power for the good of others and wait patiently for the Lord's ultimate justice. Do you want to live like that? You can. It is possible through faith in Jesus Christ to shape who we are and to shape the direction of our lives for good. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is all a picture of him, your anointed one, your perfect anointed one who is alive and reigns forevermore. Thank you for forgiveness in him. Thank you for reconciliation with you through his death on the cross. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us such that we can live radically different lives, so different from our natural instincts to pay back, attack, fight, but be restrained, gentle, humble, respectful, speaking truth, correcting narratives, leaving justice in your hands. Please would you do that reconciling work in our hearts with you, but also in our hearts with others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.